brings me great joy to ask you for the last time to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. Well, this may not be the last time, because we may need to return here and there to learn some lessons that, that we have picked up along the way. But this morning, um, this will be the concluding set of sermons on this great book. I counted up last week, and I came across, I think, 58 sermons. We've been here for a while. And then uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll move on to the book of James. People of God, here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant word of God. Beginning with verse 13, the apostle says, Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they devoted themselves from ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men, and to everyone who helps in the works and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they supplied me what was lacking on your part. They refreshed my spirits and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Prissa greet you heartily in the Lord, with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you, but greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love with you all, in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's ask God's help to understand his word. Father, help us to receive these scriptures with a firm persuasion that they are the very word of God. And with the gracious help of your Holy Spirit, enable us to understand them. And we plead with you that you would fill our hearts with a desire and strength to know, believe, and obey what you have revealed here. We cast ourselves upon your mercy and we plead with you for your help. This we ask through Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, in bringing any kind of a substantial literary work to a conclusion, there are a few different options at the disposal of a good author to bring a work to full conclusion. First of all, you can use the summary method. This was the method that you probably learned in Speech 101 when you were in college. And there you're taught to tell people what you're going to tell them, then tell them what you want to tell them, and then you conclude by telling them what you told them. Well, you could use that method, or you could tell a story. You could find something that uh, there's a thread in that narrative that somehow connects to uh, what you have been saying and what you want to drive home, but this time you use story with power and emotion to grip as people move away from that particular uh, piece of work. Or thirdly, uh, you can conclude with a series of terse exhortations. You can have people walking away with exhortations ringing in their ears so that now they have something to go do. Well, what you see here with the Apostle Paul is he has chosen the latter. Beginning with verse 13, we have a string of commands. And rather than looking at all of the commands, what I have decided to do this morning is to see if I can sort of lump them together under certain heads. And and I think that if we looked over the commands in verse 13 through verse 24, what we would find is that there are three 
broad thematic concluding statements and exhortations that Paul wants to make. And the first one is that the Apostle Paul admonishes the Corinthians to develop doctrinal backbone. The second is Paul admonishes the Corinthians to temper everything with love. And then thirdly, Paul admonishes the Corinthians to cultivate a culture of service. That's where we're headed this morning, and we'll think through those themes, and we'll see how they emerge from the text of Scripture. But when we say farewell to 1 Corinthians this morning, I want to take a moment to go back and see for a minute what it is that we have learned. It's fascinating to go back and to sort of read those uh, preliminary and early sermons in the book so that we uh, could see where the Apostle Paul wanted to take this group of believers. And uh, just to remind us, first of all, one of the great ideas of the book of Corinthians is really this. Uh, we could summarize the overall message of the book by uh, three, these three words, close the gap. That's what Paul was saying. And if, if you don't remember a lot that we learned in the book of 1 Corinthians, you should be able to remember this. You could write in your Bible, and if somebody asks you, hey, what is 1 Corinthians all about? Well, you could simply say this, Paul means to tell the Corinthians, close the gap. You get that sense, and, and I want you to turn with me back to the first chapter of Corinthians so you can see this for yourself. But you see here, the apostle makes it very clear that he wants these Corinthians to close a major gap that's happened. Verse 10, the apostle says to the Corinthians, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, and that you be made complete in the same mind. You see, there it is. It's an exhortation. It's Paul's command to the church, and it's going to have to be, uh, it's going to have to be unfolded in all of its complexity and detail. But there's the simple idea of this book. Paul is saying, you guys need to get it together in your life. Your practice has to come into conformity with your position. And you can see that position here in verse 5 of chapter 1. The Apostle Paul thanks God over the Corinthians because he says, In everything you are enriched in Christ. There it is. There is the position, the Apostle Paul says, This is indicative of you. And if you're a believer here this morning, this is indicative of you. When you come to Jesus Christ, and by faith you are united to Him, you are partakers in all of the heavenly riches which are in Christ. Right now, you are in possession of them all. You all are enriched. And you are enriched because of your position in Christ. But you see, here's a problem. Even though we have this in position, even though it's ours in principle, this has to be worked out in our practice. And this is the problem not only with the Corinthians, it's the, it's the problem with, with Christians uh, throughout the age. That there is a disjunction between their position in Christ and their practice in the world. And this is what the Apostle Paul has to correct. He has to correct that. He says, God has been faithful in verse 9. God has been faithful. He called you into fellowship with His Son. He did all the work. He sovereignly and effectually drew you out of your life of sin and idolatry and blindness to the truth. He did His part. Now, you need to, by the grace of God, see that worked out 
in the fullness of your life. And you see, as you come back to verse 10, that there are problems. Because you see, behind every admonition here that he says, I want you to agree. I don't want there to be divisions. I want you to be made complete. I want you the same mind. I want you the same judgment. You can be sure that behind all of those exhortations, there's a problem. And of course, you know what they are. Because we've been through Corinthians for a while. We've seen the problems that are there. Uh, brothers are taking brothers to court and they're suing them. Some of the stronger brothers are going into idols' temples and, and, and partaking of meat sacrifice to idols. And the weaker brothers are being led back into idolatry because of that. Uh, when the church gathers together for worship, they have the Lord's Supper. And it just turns out in the Corinth uh, that the poor were being discriminated against in this very act of, uh, of uh, signifying and sealing our union with Christ in the Lord's Supper. Because the poor people got to the worship service late and they had to sit on the outer circles of the worship facility and the rich people sat up close to the table where the bread and the wine were and when the pastor said, come on down and have the bread and the wine, the rich people ran to the front first and they consumed all the bread and wine and the poor people were sitting there left out in the cold. We also know that these Corinthians are uh, really seem to be very impressed with their spiritual gifts. And instead of using them in a way that, uh, that ministered to others, that edified others, that built up others, that were a blessing to others, that showed love to others, uh, they babbled out loud and used all their spiritual gifts to get people to look at them. So you can look at all of these verbs and exhortations here in verse 10 of chapter 1 and say, there are problems here in this church. Paul says, close the gap. Close the gap between what you are in Christ and your practice in the world. That's one major problem in the Corinthian church. The second major problem, I would argue, that uh, is going on in Corinth that had to be corrected is that these people are idea tasters. We said that lots of times. They are idea tasters. They are coffeehouse intellectuals. And they enjoy uh, learning all of the new currents and learning and spirituality and knowledge. But they can't ever seem to run back to the bedrock of truth which is in the scriptures and is in Christ and embrace that. It's as if they have one foot in the world and one foot in the Bible. They see spirituality as a means to an end. Well, you can see uh, you can see exactly what I mean when Paul sort of expounds on that a bit in verses eleven and twelve of chapter one. He says, "I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you." Oh, what are the quarrels, the apostle Paul? Do tell. Well, here it is, verse twelve. He says, "Each one of you is of saying, oh, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas, I am of Christ.'" You see, here was the situation that was going on in the church. People were lining up behind their favorite apostolic superheroes. And it just wasn't that they were lining up and saying, well, I'm of a Paul. They were actively taking sides against each other. And what they were doing was treating each and every one of these different figureheads. And I'm not saying that Cephas and Paul and Apollos were trying to act as if they were spiritual elite gurus. That's just how they treated them. And they thought that somehow they were going to find some gain for themselves in this. Some gain. And it illustrates their false understanding of Christianity. It illustrates their false understanding of the gospel and of the apostolic ministry. They were looking for something in it 
for them. And so Paul, from, from verse 17 in chapter 1 all the way through the end of chapter 3, has to spend time correcting their flawed understanding of the gospel. But you can see for yourself the substance of what Paul wants to say to this flawed understanding. You can see it in verse 30. It says, here's what it's about. Christ has become for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And that's not by your choosing. He says, it's because of what God has done. He's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He's chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. He's chosen the base things of the world and the despise God has chosen, Paul says. You see, the objective part of the salvation was one in Jesus Christ and the subjective application of the gospel was done by sovereign grace. And so basically he's trying to say to them, you need to get your feet on this bedrock of truth. It's through apostolic revelation. You have the scriptures. You know about Christ. You need to have a unified worldview, a unified way of understanding what is truth. What is Christianity? What is right? What is wrong? And you see, the problem with that is the Corinthians were all over the map. You had some people who were into some strange spirituality which denied the significance of the human body. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, it looks like there were some people who are wanting to divorce their husband or their wife because they thought that the best kind of state was the bodiless state of experience. You don't want to have physical contact with people. You don't want to live in close communion with people. And so there were all kinds of ridiculous practical problems occurring in their life because of a false spirituality. You find the same false spirituality rearing its ugly head again back in 1 Corinthians 15. There are some people in the church who have at least an ear open to this idea that there is no bodily resurrection at the end of the age when Christ returns. And there the Apostle Paul says to those who had ears open to that, he said, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. We said at the time we looked at that, it's not good morals. He says, bad conversation. Bad conversations. And the sense there is, stop talking to so many people. Stop trying to uh, orient yourself to so many different spiritual perspectives. He's saying, put your feet on the bedrock of truth and don't stray from it. Grip it, embrace it by faith. And then live it. See, there's the second gap that has to close in the Corinthians' way of operating spiritually. They need to embrace the bedrock of truth in the Word, and they need to bring their practice in conformity to that. Those are the two giant ideas in 1 Corinthians. Then there's a third And we won't spend much time on it because we'll come back to it towards the end of our message. But you see, the third major idea is that they need to learn how to live selflessly. They need to learn how to love each other. Uh, This, we get the impression, is, is a group fill of really a bunch of stuffed shirts who think that they're pretty good people, that are pretty important people, and they're really kind of above being selfless and sacrificing and concretely and practically loving to each other. That's stuffed shirt Christianity. And and the apostle stomps it out. That's not not old. That wasn't left in Corinth, by the way. 
There's a lot of that too today. And I think we need to hear these messages. And it's so, so fascinating uh, that uh, as you think about those big ideas, as you see uh, Paul coming to conclusion in 1 Corinthians 16, you can kind of see how these exhortations at the end grow out of the soil of what he's been saying. And so with that overview in mind, we turn to these concluding exhortations and the first broad theme that Paul, uh, that Paul exhorts the Corinthians to embrace. And that is develop doctrinal backbone. Develop doctrinal backbone. Now you say, uh, Pastor John, where in the world do you get that? Well, it's in the Bible. Verse 13, he says, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let's, let's work our way through those four exhortations because when we come to understand them properly, we can see that they're all reinforcing the same theme. Be on the alert. It literally means to stay awake. But if we just simply understand this in a literal sense, we'll completely miss the point. It's very common for this verb, be on the alert, to be used to refer to alertness to spiritual realities. That verb is used, for instance, uh, as uh, the Apostle Peter uh, warns early Christians to be on the alert against the devil who uh, roars about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. The word is used to refer to being on the alert against temptation. It's used to refer to being on the alert for Christ's return. It's also used for being on the alert for false doctrine. So uh, what the apostle is doing by using this word, be on the alert, he's saying that the church ought to be characterized by a perpetual vigilance, watching over what it believes very carefully. The second verb, stand firm in the faith, literally means to stand up. Like somebody standing on a street corner. But again, the figurative sense is what is in view here. Uh, This word is used in a number of places in the New Testament to call attention to people who are standing on objective truth. For instance, 1 Thessalonians 3.8. The apostle writing the Thessalonians, he hasn't seen them in about a year. He had done uh, some pastoral ministry there. He had preached the gospel there. And then he got the bums rush out of town. Well, he didn't know what happened to these believers. And uh, so he sent Timothy back there to check on them and to see how they were doing. And what he found out is, in spite of all of these enormous trials, in spite, in spite of the persecution, in spite of their family and friends and loved ones turning on them, in spite of all of the turmoil and conflict in their life, the Apostle Paul hits this joyful uh, note of exclamation, We really rejoice! Why? Because you stand firm in the truth. That's what he says. Because you stand fast. You see, they have, they have, they've taken their ideological stand upon sound doctrine and they haven't moved away from that in spite of all of the difficulties. Same word is used, for instance, in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 where the Apostle Paul exhorts the Galatian church to stand fast in the liberty which they have in Christ. There it refers to not receiving circumcision as a religious obligation. Because if they receive circumcision as a religious obligation based upon Old Testament command, then the Apostle Paul says, you have just doomed yourself to failure because now you are required to keep all of the commandments of the law. If you don't do that, you're enslaved and condemned forever and ever. 
So what does he say to the Corinthians? He's saying, stand firm in the liberty. Stand firm in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Stand firm on Christ alone. Stand firm on faith alone. See, he's saying, you've got to stand on this bedrock of truth. Now, plug all that back into Corinthians. It's just a terse exhortation, but understood from this, uh, these perspectives that we learn from Paul's own writings. We know that when he uses this here, stand firm in the faith, he's saying, get yourself on the firm foundation of inspired revelation. You get a curveball with act like men. And by the way, uh, I, I read a lot of commentaries last week and different people who have these uh, very robust sermons on chest-beating masculinity. I was tempted to have one of those sermons this morning, but I said, no, let's see if the word means that really, you know. And it turns out the word doesn't mean that at all. Literally, in Dritzomite does, it means act like men. Literal translation of the Greek. But the fact of the matter is, that word is used about 25 times in the Old Testament. And in every one of its uses, it means be courageous. So uh, the ladies who are here today will be happy to know that this command applies to them too. Now it's okay sometimes if the apostle grabs the ear of some of the men and say, "You guys need to, uh, you need to snap, uh, snap it up, stand toe to heel, and." Uh, And get your stuff together. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, here's what you need to be. All of you, you be courageous in the defense of your faith. And then finally we have, be strong. And again, this is to be taken figuratively. He's not telling us to go down to Gold's Gym and start pumping iron. He says, be strong psychologically. Be strong spiritually. It's used of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1 verse 80. We're told the child grew and became strong. That's what he mean. He didn't mean he was working out. It means he was becoming strong in his faith and his apprehensions of the faith. Okay, so there are the four verbs. The big idea here is develop backbone doctrinally. You see, that's the entire point. This is what he's saying to the idea tasters in Corinth. Stop having all of your conversations. I get so irritated by that word conversations, by the way. Nobody believes in truth anymore. We just have conversations. Somehow through conversations, I appreciate your perspective, you appreciate mine. We both walk away with nothing really in common, but we've had a conversation. So we have conversations among ourselves, we have ecumenical conversations, we sit down with the Roman Catholics, we sit down with the Muslims, we sit down uh, with, with the Buddhists. We, we're always having conversations, leading nowhere. Sound and fury signifying nothing, but we'll go ahead and have them. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying to these people, put your feet on the rock of truth. Stand firm. And I'm going to argue here that there is a priority in these verbs. And and, and I'm going to argue that because I'm going to ask you the question. If you look at the four verbs there in verse 13, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. If you took one of those out, which one of those verbs would radically change the sense of this series of exhortations? What? Stand firm is it? Because, see, you have to have something uh, that you stand on. You have to have some objective truth, which is your main reference point. You don't just stand out on a guard post somewhere guarding nothing. 
Now, they'll do that in basic training where you stand out and you guard garbage cans all night, but, but most people don't stay on the alert to guard garbage cans. You know, you have to have truth. It has to matter. It has to mean something. You don't defend something courageously that doesn't, uh, that doesn't have any substance, you see. You don't grow strong in something that isn't real. So the priority here is to take a firm stand on objective truth. And that truth being revealed in the very Word of God. So what he is saying to the Corinthian church is, you need to come back to the apostolic revelation. You need to come back to the Scriptures. You need to come back to the preaching and the teaching about Christ. And you need to say, this is where we stand. Because if you don't do that, there's no reason at all to be on the alert. The only reason why anybody would be on alert after that is just if there were going to be a reporter recording the facts. So Paul says uh, here in this admonition that you need to stand firm. You need to come to firm ground doctrinally. And you know, uh, this sounds like good red meat conservatism to reform people. Because people might say, well, you're just already hypersensitive about this stuff anyway. You guys like to debate. You like to argue. You like to really get engaged in these doctrinal discussions. You like to read books. All of you have a library full of big, giant books that could be used as doorstops. And it's true, we do. Now, maybe sometimes it's wrong-headed, but here is the idea that our doctrine comes from the very Word of God, which He has inspired. It is the revelation of God to us. It is the knowledge of God. If I lose the Word of God, I lose the knowledge of God. That's why it matters. It doesn't matter so that we can win Bible trivial pursuit. It matters because if I lose the truth, I lose the knowledge of God. That's what's at stake. And so uh, Paul says, look, you have the appearance of being inquisitive. You have the appearance of liking to learn. But you're just going in circles and you're never really getting at the truth as you keep yourself open-minded and having all these conversations. The truth is in the Word and that's where you need to take your stand. As we apply this to ourselves as a church, I think first of all we need to see here in this order of exhortations as Paul brings this great letter to conclusion that it seems to me that a nail he wants to drive home in his point here is doctrine comes first. Now I'm not going to say that doctrine is more important or has a greater priority than love or sacrifice uh, for each other. I don't think that's the point at all. But doctrine comes first because there has to be a foundation. You can't build up a building uh, with walls unless it's first of all built on a foundation. You cannot separate love and a culture of, of sacrificial service from the foundation stone of faith and sound doctrine. You can't do it. And it seems to me that this is one of the major problems with both Protestant liberalism and evangelical progressivism. It thinks that somehow we can get rid of the doctrine, we can trim off the rough edges, we can put away the things that really don't seem very appealing to people, or maybe don't help our churches get big. We can set those things aside, the things that might be irritating to people, and what we'll do is we'll just concentrate on the stuff that Jesus is all about, which is love. 
And so we have all kinds of ministries, and we have soup kitchens, and we have social justice sit-ins, and we have, uh, we have recycling clothing drives, we've got ministries all over the place, and all of those things probably are wonderful in and of themselves. But if you cut them off from the foundation of doctrine, you don't have any substance to them. Doctrine is the foundation. Doctrine is the foundation. The Word of God is the foundation. And capturing what is in the Word and making that the foundation of everything is vital to the health of the activity that the church engages. And so Paul would say, here is your priority, all saints. Here is your priority. You need to develop a doctrinal background because that doctrine has to be the foundation of your faith. Without that, that doctrine centering in Jesus Christ... Church is a social club. The second thing is that this developing or this call to develop a doctrinal backbone is for all of the members of the church. This is for all the members of the church. We cannot imagine a healthy church where only the men are doctrinally minded and then the women just learn about uh, hospitality and, and, and relationships and love. I, I, I think that that's such a wrong-headed way of thinking about who gets to learn what in church, or who's responsible for what. You know, Paul is speaking here to all the members of the church, and he's saying everybody needs to have doctrinal backbone. And this is one reason, and I can just say it out loud here, I might as well, I might get myself into trouble, but this is one of the reasons why I don't like segregated studies in the church. In segregated studies, I mean, well, we have the men's group, and they get the pastor, and he teaches them systematic theology in the book of Romans, and then we have the women and children, and they're just taught by volunteers, and they get to learn the simple stuff, and the stories, and uh, slime the Galeas in their life, and daring to be a Daniel, but they don't get the substance. They just focus on the relationship side. No, no. Both the men and the women are commanded to be doctrinally sound and and, and doctrinally uh, aware of their faith. And they are also to be the same people, men and the women, doing the loving actions and the self-sacrificial service. It's not that just the women do that. The men are required to do that as well. And I think sometimes that that there's a division that happens, even in Reformed churches, where it's if, well... It doesn't matter that the women get taught the same way. They wouldn't really be interested in catechism and doctrine and the book of Romans. No, we can't have that mentality. Everybody needs to be. Because how will a man share his faith with his wife if they don't believe or understand or assent to the same doctrinal ideas? How will that happen? How will a mother have a deep a spiritual relationship uh, with her sons? If they understand, they have been catechized, they believe their doctrine, they assent to their doctrine, but she doesn't have a clue. You see, there can't be a real unity. There needs to be uh, a careful instruction and a careful understanding by all. All are to have this uh, backbone, because if that doesn't happen, then the church, I guarantee you, Uh, will begin to erode. And I, uh, unfortunately, have had conversations with some men in some Reformed churches who have pointed out a series of things that are happening uh, in their church, and they take this terrible excuse. Well, we just do that because our wives like this, and we want to have peace at home. And I think, how can this be? 
You're saying she's not supposed to understand the doctrine? Are you saying that you don't have any accountability? You're saying you don't have any responsibility? All that matters is superficial peace, not based upon truth? We have to have doctrinal backbone in the church as a whole. All of us must believe together the truth that God has revealed in His Word. Paul says to the Corinthians, He said, I put my finger on a major problem that's going on in this church. You haven't really staked out doctrinal ground and held it. And you have to do it. If you want to be a healthy, vital church, you've got to have sound doctrine. You have to know it. You have to embrace it. You have to believe it. And then you have to live it. Second of all, he says they are to moderate everything in love. And this is a nice balance here to what you find in verse 13. Uh, Verse 13 is almost the the red meat rhetoric. Develop doctrinal backbone. But you see, then right up against that, then he quickly says, but let everything be done in love. Now that's comprehensive. He says, let all that you do be done in love. That's a comprehensive command. It's comprehensive in terms of who it includes. It's not just for the pastors, it's not just for the elders, it's not just for the officers of the church. It is every single member in the church. So, if you're saying, well, what's this sermon about for me this morning? Well, this sermon about for you this morning is found in verse 14. You are to make sure that everything you do is done in love. You're commanded here. Every person who's here this morning, who is a believer in Christ, is to make sure that what they do is to be done in love. And that's in all of their activities as a church. We've seen uh, quite a bit here in the book of Corinthians how that's not how they practice things. Uh, They're not uh, moderated by love. Uh, In their use of Christian liberty, we've seen this, right? In their use of Christian liberty, we've seen that the strong, the so-called strong Christian, well, he can go down to the the idol's temple and he can have meat as sacrifice to idols. Give no thought to the fact that there might be a weaker brother or sister out there who's watching them, who's then led right back into the sin of pagan idolatry because he sees the stronger brother or sister down there. Paul says, you're killing them with your liberty. That's not love. We've seen it in their use of the Lord's Supper. We've seen it in their use of the spiritual gifts. I mean, you you could go through a whole range of topics. You could just tick them off as as you read through this book and you can see that they haven't been doing this. And so this command here applies to a whole range and scope of things that are done in the church. Paul says, let everything that you do, let it be done in love. Let it be done in love. And that's going to lead us back, I think, uh, to to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 just for a moment uh, to remind ourselves um, a little bit here that's important. And and one of the things that that I think really pops as you look at 1 Corinthians uh, 13, uh, just how serious it is to Paul that we are a loving people. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 verse 2. He says, if I have the gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries, and I have all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. And then he says in verse 3, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, if I surrender my body to be burned, and do not have love, it profits me nothing. 
Now you're going to say, well, Pastor Sattel, you're just taking away what you said over here a little bit ago about the, some, the significance of doctrine being the priority. I'm saying, no, it's not. It is foundation. You can't have a, a love being built on any other foundation than Christ. You can't. Or it's not real love. But just as soon as we have to say that, we have to also observe Paul's way of speaking. He says, yes, you have to have it, but you can't think that you can have it in isolation. Because there's no such thing as a building without walls. You have a foundation, and you have the walls. You have to have love. And so Paul here, he goes after some of these intellectual elitists in the church. You know, he says, you can fill your head with facts of all of the theological knowledge that is stored in all of the libraries in this world, and you can have a head the size of a basketball. But if it never informs your life, that's wrong. Not only is it wrong, he says, it's nothing. He says, you can have all of the emotional experiences you like. You can get goosebumps all over as you're singing and you're doing all of your spiritual experiential stuff. And he says, if you do all that and yet you don't have love, if it doesn't help you or lead you to love God more or to love your neighbor, he says, that's nothing. And then he really kicks the stools out from beneath our feet when he says, you know, you could give all that you have, all of your possessions to feed the poor. You could sacrifice and have your body be burned in the fire. But if you don't have love, he says, it's all a big waste of time. You see, love is essential. Because love is not selfish. Love looks out to my neighbor. And it says, how can I bless them? And that's what a person does when they're in Christ. When they have been united to Christ, and when they have seen Christ lay down His life for them, what do they do now? Where they overflow with that. So what I want to say, people of God, this morning is that we have to be this as a Reformed church. We have to be this as a Reformed church. We have to be a church that does everything in love. Because a failure to love indicates a failure to understand the gospel. A failure to love indicates a failure to understand the gospel. You know, we can pride ourselves because we know the difference between infra and super lapsarianism. We can pride ourselves because we know the difference between a reprobation of the doctrine of individual election. Or we could pride ourselves because we understand what words like homoousios means. Or we can talk about Chalcedonian II, nature's Christology. Isn't that wonderful? But you know what? If we don't love, it says that we didn't understand the basics, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which is justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, to the glory of God alone. And so, Pastor, where are you getting this connection between love and the gospel? Well, I think it's in the very word that is so often used by the New Testament writers to talk about love. Agape. It's used 116 times in the New Testament, over 70 times by the Apostle Paul. It's used everywhere in the New Testament. But guess what? If you read the ancient Greek literature... You don't find it anywhere. Nobody uses agape. A. 
A.T. Robertson talks about the fact that its infrequent use made it very suitable for Christians then to use that word and to fill it up with their own content. Well, Dr. Leon Morris helps us see what kind of content Christians saw in their use of this word. He said, Christians thought of love as that quality we see on the cross. It is a love for the utterly unworthy. A love that proceeds from God who is love. It is a love lavished upon others without a thought whether they are worthy or not. It proceeds from the nature of the one who loves rather than the attractiveness of the one who loved. You see? It flows out of the gospel. That's, that's, a, that's a picture of the gospel. That's what God did to you. It wasn't, he, didn't, he didn't save you because he said, well, you know, I know that person, they're going to do even the best thing that any Christian could do. They're going to go be a minister. So I know they'll make good use of this. That's why I'll, that's why I'll, that's why I'll save them. No, it's not that at all. There was nothing attractive. God determined to love. God determined to love. He chose the weak things and the despised things and the things that were really, literally no things. That's what Paul says. And so then that means that when we understand the gospel properly, there will be real evidence of that. There will be fruit. There will be fruit. And so it's not surprising that Jesus says this is the characteristic of a disciple of Christ in John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. By this, all men will know you are my disciples. If what? You fill in the blanks. If you love one another. You see, an accurate understanding of the gospel leads to an overwhelming sense of gratitude, which is now, which is now manifest in a life of practical love. Uh, people of God, this is, a, this is a command that we always have to revisit as a church. Always. And we always have to revisit this command with the gospel ringing in our ears. You see, there's no other way to teach and testify and preach the truth than in love. There's no other way to live together with one another as a bunch of sinful believers except for in love. There's no way to invite people into our church who speak a different language, who look different than us, who live in a different culture from us, and to love them and to, and to embrace them and to bless them than in love. And there's no other way that we will be led to fervent prayer for people who don't know Jesus except for we love them. And so Paul here puts his finger on something very important for the church. He says, yes, you be doctrinal, but he follows it up immediately with, but let everything be done in love. We have to appreciate that very important, the second admonition. That leads thirdly then uh, to the parting conclusion, which is this, that Paul is... um, Paul is commanding the Corinthian church to cultivate a culture of sacrificial service. To cultivate a culture of sacrificial service. You say, well, Pastor John, where do you get that? Well, look at verse 15 and then verse 18. 
Uh, verse 15 says, Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus. They were the first fruits of Achaia, and they, they devoted themselves to ministry and to the saints. He says, You be in subjection to such people, and to everyone who helps and works in labor. See, he's really placing this up on a pedestal. He's saying, This is very, very important. You be in subjection. Probably the best translation of that word there in this context is, uh, as they have done to you, you do it to them. That's the subjection. As they have done it to you, you do it to them. Now look at verse 17. He says, uh, Rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. Here's this wonderful word here in verse 18. They have refreshed my spirit. And then what he say? Acknowledge. So those are the two verbs which indicate to us that Paul is admonishing them to cultivate a culture of self-sacrificial service for others. He said, you submit to what Stephanus and people like him are doing. In other words, as they do it to you, you do it to them. And then he talks about these wonderful brothers here who went down to see him uh, where he was in Ephesus. Stephanus and Fortunatus and the Caicus. He said, they refreshed me. He says, such people acknowledge, publicly talk about it. Well, why would you publicly talk about something like that? Well, because it's considered important. That's what Paul's saying. It's important. By doing this, he is saying, what I want to see happen is a culture of self-sacrificial service cultivated. In your church. That's not just Paul's admonition of the Corinthians. That's to us. How do you cultivate a culture of self-sacrificial service? Well, you always preach the gospel. (laughs) That's for sure. Always preach the gospel. Because it always flows straight out of someone's relationship with Jesus Christ. But the nuts and bolts of it, the preacher tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, here's one way you could do it. He says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. He said, make it something that is imprinted on your minds. Make it that you're these kind of people who think about this. How do I stimulate the people around me to love and good deeds? I think that's a very practical way for us to start doing this here in our church or to continue to do this. Cultivate a culture. We acknowledge it. We talk about it openly. We submit to it as we've understood it here. As people serve us, we serve them. We cultivate a culture of self-sacrifice for others. And again, this is one of those commands that isn't good for your neighbor to hear. It's one of those commands that you are to hear. If you are a Christian and you have experienced Christ and His grace, with the gospel ringing in your ears, you hear this. Cultivate a culture of self-sacrifice. You know, you can spot a loveless, non-sacrificing church a mile away. And it's not very nice to be in those churches. And what we need to do is evaluate this command 
say, building on our doctrine, building on our relationship with Jesus Christ, this is what we need. We need to cultivate a culture of self-sacrificial service towards each other. And I would say that today is a good time to start that, not next week. Today, as, as we wrap up worship and as we, we, uh, we begin to fellowship with each other, that's a good time to start right there. This is a huge calling that Paul lays on the burden or the shoulders of the Corinthians. He says, essentially, this is what you need to do to close the gap. And you know, when we started this whole series, we said this is what we want to do. We want to let the book shape our lives in the way that Paul intended it to. We want to let Corinthians shape our lives as Paul intended it to. I got to thinking about that last week. I felt pretty discouraged because I felt like, in all honesty, it hadn't quite done the things that I had hoped it had done in my life. It made me humble as I look back at what we have learned. But here's the thing. Maybe you feel like that with me. But here's what Paul would have us do. Take these admonitions with us as the gospel rings in our ears. And let's turn them over, over and over and over again. We commit to them as a church. Develop a doctrinal backbone. Moderate everything we do with love. And cultivate a culture of service. And then we ask God. We ask God to work these things in us as a church. And having said that, people of God, we say farewell to 1 Corinthians. Let's pray.